0: This is the Bigger Pockets podcast show 358. Happy Thanksgiving.
1: I don't know why every single human being doesn't house hack. You should. <laughs> if you want to build financial freedom, either you should buy a property and be renting out rooms or units, or you should be on the other end of it. You should be renting out rooms or units from somebody that has it until you save up enough money that you could buy your own. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from biggerpockets.com, your home for real estate investing online.
0: What's going on, everyone? This is Brandon, host of the Bigger Pockets podcast here with my co-host, Mr. David Green. David, welcome to the solo show with you and I today.
1: Thank you. Welcome yourself to the solo show with you and I. It's not really a solo show. What did we call it last time? A duet show? Yeah, it's a a duet. We're we're doing a duet today. We're like Sonny and Cher. We'll let the listeners decide who's who.
0: Yeah, okay, there we go. So today's show, we decided to do something a little bit different because like right now I'm constantly hearing, and David, I'm sure you are as well, a lot of people talking about how it's hard to invest in real estate right now. It's really difficult. But David and I, and I don't mean to make fun of people because it is sometimes hard, right? But... In today's market, it's changing and different things work now than maybe worked a few years ago. And so today we want to dedicate an entire show so that you can learn like, what should you be doing? What is working in today's market? And give you a bunch of different options, things that David and I are doing, or things that we're we're you know friends of ours are doing, that associates of ours, that clients of ours, whatever are doing, so that you can kind of get the most out of it. That sound about right, David. Good explanation. Of that's
1: that's exactly right. You know what I was thinking is there was a time when people paid a lot of money to learn how to buy real estate, and what they were told was. You go to the newspaper and you look for all the notice of defaults and you go, not right. Like that was the hot strategy at a time. And now we think about like that is so archaic, but it wasn't really that long ago. And you kind of have to accept that real estate is always going to be changing. The environment changes, the culture changes, technology changes, how things are done change. And you got to kind of move with that in order to always be, be able to get the next deal.
0: Exactly, exactly. So today's show is is about six different strategies. We're going to go through six strategies, kind of in depth, talking about each one, why it works, the stories of how it's worked, and kind of how you can use those to make money in today's market. Then we're going to shift to talking about some accelerants. We call them accelerants, things that you can pour fuel on the fire to make those strategies work. Now, before we do that,
1: though, let's get to today's quick, quick tip. tip. <laughs> I was waiting forever on you. It, t- it took longer to say the quick tip than the quick tip is probably going to
0: be. I know. The quick tip today is very simple. If you are looking to get started investing in real estate, a really important thing to do is to start connecting with local people in your market. So I want to challenge you today is to find somebody in your market over the next two weeks that you can take out to coffee, lunch, get on a phone call with, go and sweep their garage floor. I don't care. Find something you can do in the next two weeks to connect with a real estate investor who's further along the journey from you than you are. And I don't care if you've done a hundred deals, find somebody who's done 200, right? So somebody further along, find somebody in your market and at least connect with them, make a face-to-face connection in the next week. And of course you can go to biggerpockets.com slash events To see if there's any events in your area, or engage in your local forum, or just you know connect with people like somehow and go door to door until you find a landlord. All right, so that's that's today's quick tip.
2: Finding rental property insurance has been a headache for the past few years. You know the feeling. You're scrambling, calling twenty different insurance agencies in a dozen different cities, struggling to protect your portfolio at the right cost. But I'm going to tell you a little secret that'll change everything. Veteran investors don't go through the everyday insurance companies. They just use NREG. NREG, that's N-R-E-I-G, provides insurance solely for real estate investors. They've built the largest insurance program in the country for residential tenant-occupied vacant and renovation properties. The best part? You can put all your properties on one insurance schedule and one monthly bill. And you can add, change, or remove properties without having to cancel one policy and purchase another. They insure properties from single-family rentals, up to 20-unit multifamily dwellings, vacation rentals, mobile homes, condos, and more. Trade catchy jingles for cash flow with insurance made for investors. Visit nreg.com bppod to request a proposal. n-r-e-i-g dot com
3: slash b-p-p-o-d. Do you ever feel like your vacation rental sits empty too often? Missing out on potential income? Look, you're not alone. Many property owners struggle with underperforming bookings and the complexities of property management. But here's some good news. Vacasa outperforms other property managers in 92% of the markets they operate. They've helped homeowners like you increase their bookings by an average of 24%, turning those empty days into profitable opportunities. Want to see what your earnings could look like with Vacasa? Visit biggerpockets.com Vacasa, spelled V-A-C-A-S-A.
4: Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com slash BP.
0: And now, I think it's time to get into this show. Let's just jump in. Like I said, we're going to talk about six different strategies that you can use today in today's market to make money in real estate, things that are working today. And I want to start with probably the hottest buzzword, if you can even call it a word, the buzz acronym. Of the year, (laughs) and a book just came out about that topic recently from David Green here. It's called Burr. David, what the heck is Burr investing for those who have not heard of that?
1: Burr is an acronym that you came up with, and I got all the credit for. Which I I gotta say, I'm not too unhappy about that. I'm not too bad about it. It stands for Buy Rehab Rate Refinance Repeat. What were you gonna say? I was
0: gonna say I'll send you a a check or a bill later for my my royalties for that. Every time you you
1: deserve it. it. But you never would because you're a good guy. It's really funny. Um, in fact, I'm actually kind of like possessive over it, even though I didn't make it. whenever somebody else teaches on Burr, I'm like, who do you think you are? Yeah, it's right? well, like,
0: your problem, man.
1: I own Burr, but I don't. In fact, people have been Burring before Burr was ever yeah, a name. It's true. It's, it's, it's basically just this principle of buying an asset, which is usually real estate because that's what we talk about, improving its value and then refinancing it when you're done to recover your capital to go reinvest. It's an extremely simple business principle that people have been using for years to make money. But you and I have figured out very specific ways that we can apply it to real estate. And it's helping a lot of people build a lot of wealth.
0: Yeah. And one of the questions people ask all the time is like, well, will I go through that whole thing. So is, Let is, let, let me say the acronym. So it's buy, you buy a property. And I would say you're usually using short-term money of some kind, because here's the deal. You're probably buying a nasty property, right? Most burrs are somewhat nasty and banks do not want to lend on a nasty property. So you have a couple options. You can sit on the couch watching TV or you can find another way to buy it. So that's what we do. We we use a number of, like what have you used for a bird to, to buy a property?
1: Uh, I've used my own cash. Okay. I've used private capital that I borrowed from other people. I've taken HELOCs on properties and yep. used... That cash to do it, and I've refinanced former burrs and taken that money to buy the next one.
0: Exactly, yeah. So there's there's different strategy, and there's a lot of them. And I've done I've done a lease option once to Burr. I've done seller financing to Burr. I've done, and we'll talk about some of the stuff later in the later half of the show uh, when we talk about the accelerants. But the idea is you use short term money, and probably the easiest short term money for a lot of people is probably hard money, it's because they don't, a lot of people don't have the private money connections yet. Uh, but hard money lenders, they're just people who basically finance flippers, but they also finance Burr investors. So, anyway, you buy the property with short-term money. You then rehab it. You fix it up and make it really nice. And the beauty of that when you're gonna hold on to it, because these are rental properties, you're gonna hold on to it. Now, like your repairs and maintenance budget drops because everything's already been fixed, ideally. So you buy it, rehab it, then you rent it out. And what's great is you now have a remodeled property. It's a rehab property, which means you can rent it out for top dollar. Tenants love to live in remodeled properties. So you you now rent it out. Now you've got this beautiful property that's really nice. You go and go to a local bank or any bank and and say hey, I got this really nice property. Now, do you want to lend on it? And the bank's like, Heck, yes, we do. We like nice, pretty properties. And so then they give you a loan, and that with that new loan, you pay off the short term money. So now you have long term money. You pay off the short term money, and now that your short term money is freed up, whatever that was, whether it was your own personal cash or a hard money lender, you can go and repeat the process. So buy, rehab, rent, refinance, repeat. All right. So the 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 question I want to know for you or from you, David, today is like, what do people like? If they want to start burring now, what do they gotta do? Like what are some of the like the just the obvious like first steps?
1: Well, the first thing you have to do is, is you start with the acronym and you work, you work your way down. And in the book that I wrote, the Burr book that BiggerPockets published, I kind of talk about if you master every stage of Burr, you've basically mastered every stage of real estate investing. Yeah. If you can master buying good deals, rehabbing them, understanding how to rent them out and analyzing that, uh, understanding how to refinance them and how banks work, and then creating systems to repeat the process, you've become what I call a black belt investor. You're going to make big wealth. So it starts with buying good deals. Yeah, there you yeah. go. I like that. I was just telling- My Brandon before month. we recorded that with his long arms he's like dalsam from street fighter 2 if anybody ever played that game send send brandon a yoga on uh, on instagram he's he's beardy brandon uh and then get back to listening to this because this is a really good show i don't want you to get too distracted uh but you got to buy good deals in fact that is where all wealth comes from in real estate yeah. investing there's there's a small argument to be made for making good deals and adding value through you know the rehab and we're going to touch on that later in the show today but buying good deals is really where it's at and what i love about about burr is it is if you start with the end in mind and you know you have to refinance this when you're done and you want to get all your capital you probably got to be all in for 75% of what it's going to appraise for which means you got to buy a really good deal. You can't buy mediocre deals because then burr's pointless. If you're yep. refinancing at the end and you're not getting more of your money back than if you just bought it traditionally then why what's the point? Why go through all that? So it starts with finding good deals.
0: Yeah. That's, that's exactly. And and learning how to find good deals. Like I always say, is like, like the number one skill an investor can have is knowing how to like run the numbers and determine if it's a good deal and building that pipeline. We'll talk about that later. Again, the pipeline or the funnel, that's part of the accelerance that we'll talk about later. Uh, But here's an example, bro. I want to give an example and I'll let you do the same, David, just so if this is a little confusing to people. So I bought a property. I love telling this story. It's the the Rosie story, right? So I bought Mm -hmm. this fourplex for my daughter, Rosie, the week she was born. I have a philosophy that if you buy every kid, you have a property, just any property, like simple, basic, cheap, doesn't matter property on a 15 year mortgage before they're like five years old. Then by the time it's paid off, it's paid off. It's worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. And now their college education's paid for So that was the deal. So I bought this property super cheap because it was nasty. Like it was, it was disgusting. It was a garbage hoarder in one of the units and the other one was like a vagrant living there. And then like the other two were just destroyed. So we bought it for 40, it was $40,000. Might have been 45. Yeah, 45. $45,000. We then put like 120 grand into it. So we bought it with a combination of private money and I got just a line of credit from the bank, just like an unsecured line of credit. So I bought it with that so I had no money out of pocket. Then we so bought it for 45. I put 120k into a rehab. Uh, that one hundred and twenty also that came from those two sources. So the, the hardware lender actually lent or the private lender lent me a hundred grand. And then I borrowed the extra like 45, 50 I needed. And, or whatever from the, or 60 anyway, from the bank line of credit, which made it. So I had very little money in this deal. Then, Once it was all fixed up, all four units were rented out. It's a great property. We went to a local bank and we refinanced it. It appraised at like 225, if I remember right. Uh, We had 100 and whatever that is, 160 something into it. And so we were able to get a refinance. So I could pay back the private lender. And then we now have a low, just a nice 30 year fixed mortgage. Well, it's actually a 30 year mortgage that I have set to paid it off. It'll be paid off entirely years, right? in 18 years from the time I got the loan. So when Rosie's, well, yeah, 18 years from the time we bought the property, it's set to pay it off. So Rosie will be 18 when that's paid off to nothing. And now that money was freed up. So guess what? My private lender, he lent me money on another deal. And in fact, we'll talk about syndication later, but I did a syndication. He just put money into my syndication because I can use that same money and recycle it. So that was an example of a burr deal. Uh, I'll throw one at you if you wanna give an example.
1: Yeah, so the example I like to give is the very first one that I ever did. It worked out really good. I had this property in Arizona that wasn't performing very well. It had appreciated in value, but the rents weren't going up. So I sold that property, I took the money and I bought a property in Florida that was undervalued through a wholesaler, I fixed it up, and it, it was worth so much more when it was appraised than it was when I bought it that not only did I get all my capital back, I got another fifteen thousand back That's cool. so I had put sixty five thousand into it from the Arizona house, and then I got back eighty thousand dollars. I then used that eighty thousand dollars to buy the next bird deal, got all that eighty back, and continued that process to buy about ten more properties that year now those 10 properties you can imagine every time you buy a new property i'm i'm increasing by an average of $25,000 in equity on each one and about $300 in cash flow so that's 3 grand in cash flow plus $250,000 to my net worth out of the same $65,000 that was one house i turned one house into 10 and if you get a good deal every single time it's that you know that analogy of the snowball that rolls down the hill and it grows bigger as it goes, that's what Burr can do for you. This is why this is such a powerful strategy. Now it's not easy because you got to get a good deal. You can't just go pay market value for something. You can't go buy something that doesn't need work. Usually you're going to have to manage a rehab. You're going to earn that money. But man, if you look at like Rosie, you put all that money in, you got it all back out. So you got your capital to buy your next deal. She's got a house. You're going to enjoy the cash flow for the next 18 years. And she's going to be set. She's going to have enough money to pay for her college, her car, Probably a down payment for a house, and then some money's left over that she can start a retirement account. All because of one good decision that you made 18 years earlier.
0: Yeah, that's the power of real estate, right? You, you do stuff now, and it affects you years and years later. But what I love about rental properties, especially Burr, is you can get cash flow now and wealth later. Like you can get, you can get both. You don't have to choose between them, and that's one thing I like about it. Now, David, why? Why in today's market, which is super heated, we're at the, probably the top of the market or at least coming close to it. uh, People are getting a little bit worried about it being toppy. Why is Burr a good strategy in this market?
1: Well, you never know what the market's going to do. And that's the first thing you have to understand is it could go out at any minute. Now you and I, we, we talk, we're happy if the market goes down because we can go buy houses cheaper. We're actually kind of rooting for that in a lot of ways, even though I'm a real estate (laughs) agent, I'll make less money in my business. I'll make more wealth buying properties. But when you burr, you get in and you get your money back out. Now, the only way that you get hurt if the market drops, because who really cares what your property is worth? As long as it's cash flowing, it doesn't matter to you. But the, the hurt is if you put all your capital into a deal, And then you can't buy properties when they've gone down. The opportunity cost is really where you lose money when you buy too early. In fact, that's why most people say, I don't want to buy right now because what if the market goes down? Well, what they're realizing is if I put my 50 grand into the market now and it goes down, I'll really wish that I had it when it dropped. Well, Burr lets you have your cake and eat it too. You put that 50 grand in, you get it back out, the market drops, you're in the exact same position just with another cash flowing rental property. So it's really the wisest way to be be a wise steward of your money and make it work the, the best for you.
0: The way that I like to look at that is, you know, typically in a burl, like you said earlier, you want to make sure that you have like 25, 30% equity in the property at the end. In other words, let's, for simple math, let's say you found a property that after it's all fixed up and beautiful, it was worth a hundred grand, which means you don't, the bank is going to give you a loan. Like again, after everything's said and done, the property is worth a hundred grand. The bank's going to probably give you a loan for $70,000 at the end during the refinance, which means Mm -hmm. you need to make sure that you're all in. All your money, what you bought it for, all the rehab, all the closing costs, everything. If you want to get all your money out, you need to make sure you're not over $70,000 total, which is totally doable. I mean, flippers do that all the time. House flippers do it. So so can burr investors. But here's what's cool is that let's say people are like, well, what if the market crashes in the middle of the burr before you refinance? Well, good thing you only owe $70,000 on a property worth 100. Oh, no, the market yeah. crashed 10%. Now it's worth 90 Okay, well now you have a choice. You can refinance it and just have some of your cash left in it, or you can just sell it. And what if it yep. drops twenty percent? Okay, just sell it. Thirty percent, sell it. So like you have a long way to drop before you're really in trouble, and that's why I like it in this part of the market cycle.
1: You know, it's funny when people ask that question: What will you do if the market drops right in this this tiny sliver of time when you yeah, could, the could six be doing month your rehab, period, basically, yeah. compared to the whole you know thirty years of real estate or whatever? But <laughs> but you. What if you bought it traditionally and you paid 95000 instead of 100000 and you think you got a great deal because you paid less? How much money are you going to lose in that case? Yeah. So even though BERT isn't perfect, you could lose money. You are so much less likely to lose money than the traditional method that it's, to me, a no-brainer the way to go.
0: Yeah, there you go.
1: Two more uh, two more things I want to say about yeah. before we move on. One, like Brandon said, when you fixed it up and you've put money into the rehab before you refinance, you get that money back when you refinance. If you put money into a deal after you've already bought it, that money's gone. One of the benefits of fixing it up, buying a fixer upper, is you reduce your capital expenditures, right? How much money yeah. I have to set aside to replace things because I did it all in the beginning and then got that money back. So it's gonna cash flow better when I fix it all up in the beginning. The second thing is what we're describing. Is basically the same as what a house flipper does, but yep. instead of selling it, we keep it. So you're going to pay closing costs when you refinance it, but you're going to avoid closing costs on uh, selling a house. You're going to avoid real estate commissions, and you're going to avoid the capital gains tax because you kept the property. It ends up being much cheaper as long as the place will cash flow than flipping a house. And you you would have to pay all those things for the same work if you were flipping instead of burring.
0: So what do you think people mess up on most? Last question before we move on when they when yeah. they burr, what do they screw up on?
1: Two things. One, they mess up on the appraised value, the ARV. That's definitely something that it's very, very tricky and hard to get down. I like to actually pay an appraiser to look at it or use real estate agents that are really good. Because if you think it's going to be worth 100 and it ends up being worth 78, that's going to affect how much of your capital you could get back. Two is the rehab. And that's the case for any kind of real estate. It's not unique to Burr. If you're buying it traditionally, if you're flipping a house, whatever you're doing, rehabs are tricky. They always go over a budget. They always go over the timeline you're supposed to have. But if you make sure that those two things go right, it's very difficult to to lose money when doing a bur.
0: Yeah, that's really good. Yeah, I'm looking up right now. I'm I'm gonna I'm scrolling through my tax return this year. Let's see. I want to see what my actual capex was on Rosie's property. Let's see. Um, I've got so many properties. All right. Uh, let's see.
1: Let's all feel bad for Brandon because he has so many properties. He's
0: I know to it's rough. We're sitting at $4,000 in all repairs and maintenance and CapEx. Everything for the whole year was like $4,100. Now I'm getting $2,800 a month times 12, 34, roughly $34,000 a year. So last year, so we had about 11% in total CapEx and repairs and maintenance last year, which isn't bad at all. I usually estimate anywhere between 5 and 10% each for repairs and maintenance and CapEx. So typically I'm between... 10 and 20% on the high end, 20 on the high end, 10 on the really low. So I was at 11% last year on all repairs and maintenance for that. Um, I'm trying to see what other number I can pull out of here. Other, I depre- my depreciation was five grand. So I, I depreciated more than my entire repairs were, which is awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. So again, I, that's why I love real estate. I'm looking at this deal right now. So last year, we made $9,000 on that property. So slightly less than the year before. The year before I actually made it was like 12,2 or something like that. So 750 bucks a month in actual Oh no no. That's with depreciation. I got it back in again. So it was actually 9 plus 44. So you made more money. So I actually made a little bit more money than last year. 13, yeah, it was 13, just a little over a $1,000 a month in cash flow on that one. Yeah. So again, the burr is awesome cuz you can get cash flow now and you can get uh wealth later. So this property is getting paid down quickly. Uh and I'm also getting cash flow to live in Hawaii. So all right. Anyway, I thought that would be kind of fun to look at that like live here while we're recording this. Is how did I do on that property last year? I never actually looked too in depth at that when I got my returns back. So moving on. Number two. Next
1: strategy. What do we got?
0: Let's talk about house hacking. We just released a book at Bigger Pockets called The House Hacking Strategy by Craig Curlop because this is a really, really popular topic uh, in today's market because a lot of people, I mean, it's crazy right now. Rents are crazy, but purchase prices are crazy. And as most people are probably aware of, your biggest expense in life is likely your housing expense. For most people, their biggest expenses are housing expense. I mean, for, for many people, it's like 50% of all the money they make goes to their housing. Imagine mm-hmm. if you didn't have to pay that 50%. So house hacking is the idea where you buy a property and use it as both a, an investment property and a primary residence. Most common, the most common usage is you either buy a single family house and rent the bedrooms out, or like the way I started, I mean, I started with that with my very first house. I rented the bedrooms. Secondly, then I bought a duplex and I rented out the other unit. And so in both those cases, I was able to live for free. And I know, David, you've done the same thing.
1: Yeah. So I'd say as a real estate agent in the Bay Area, probably 30% of my clients are coming to me because they want a house hack. That's how powerful this is. And you summed it up perfectly. You are combining owning a property to live in with owning investment property. And one of the reasons this is so powerful is you can use the really low down payment loans to get into the market. And when houses are expensive and the market is hot, it's really hard stuff like this becomes that much more important. You have to be able to take advantage of 1%, 3%, 5% down loans to get in and reduce your living expenses and start to learn how to be a landlord and eventually get to the point you have cash flow and start building equity and start paying your loan down you get all the benefits that come yep. from owning uh, rental property without needing as much capital to get started and frankly by taking a much smaller risk because when it's your own property and you get to pick your tenants and you get to kind of learn the ropes at a slow pace and yep. kind of playing in the shallow end of the pool it's really good for your confidence and you also have to put less money in so you reduce your risk at every point I I gave a seminar on this in Sacramento actually two nights ago and I was thinking when I was talking talking, i don't know why every single human being doesn't house hack you should (laughs) if you want to build financial freedom either you should buy a property and be renting out rooms or units or you should be on the other end of it you should be renting out rooms or units from somebody that has it until you save up enough money that you could buy your own
0: yeah it's such a great strategy in fact like in hawaii here where it's very expensive in hawaii just like it is the bay area like this is a like they don't call it house hacking here, but everybody in Hawaii pretty much is house hacking. Like the whole state is pretty much house hacking. Cause like you can't afford it. Like the average person doesn't afford to live in Hawaii unless you have two or three units rented out at your property. So we call them Ohana units here. And ev- like, there's so many of them. Uh, some are legal. Some are just like, you know, somebody takes a basement and turns it into a unit or they take a bedroom and add up a little kitchenette. But everywhere you look in Hawaii, people are doing that. And so it works. I mean, I got, I did it in Grace Harbor, Washington, where I bought a property for 80 grand, a duplex on a house hacked. Uh, and then I house hacked here where you buy houses for almost $2 million and you have to house hack to make it work. So again, it, it works and it, it's very, very
1: powerful. And there's so many ways you can do it. So I think on a future episode, we're going to interview a client that I had. They're actually house hacking an assisted living facility. Really? They bought a property. Yeah. And they're going to rent the rooms out to people who need like assisted living, like typically elderly people. They're probably going to make five to six grand per room on this four or five bedroom house. And they bought it with an FHA loan because they're going to be living in it. Crazy. That's cool. So when all is said and done, they're gonna be making ten to fifteen thousand dollars a month to run this business out of their house that they put three and a half percent down to buy and got rid of the payment that they were paying when they were renting. That is so many wins stacked on top of each other. And if you just did that every year and you had, you know, for them, if they had ten houses and they're making ten to to $15,000 a month or maybe more <laughs> Yeah, like that's massive wealth that you bought putting 3% down on a bunch of houses because house hacking is that powerful
0: well on that note and, and not to deviate from the house hacking too much but we don't have that as one of our six but we probably could have made this a seven thing is assisted living is a really interesting strategy I'm, I'm definitely like intrigued by it I'm not gonna do it because I'm stuck on my mobile home park thing right now but like like I, I, whenever I talk to people who are doing it, I'm like, it just makes so much sense right now. Baby boomers mm-hmm. are getting older and older and there's a whole lot of them coming up in retirement age. They're going to need a place to live. And if you can own these little assisted living for, for, old, for elderly or for development to disabled or whatever, I mean, it's a business. It's not necessarily straight real estate. Yep. You own a business, but it's very powerful. And I know some people are making a killing right now in this market doing that.
1: So yeah, probably cool. more to come on that later, but for now, let's just yes. move on.
0: Moving on. All right, let's go to, so number one was Burr. Number two was house hacking. Uh, the last thing I'll say about house hacking is one of the reasons it's so powerful too is uh, the 3.5% down payment or 3% down payment. If you're gonna live in a property, banks don't require the 20 or 30% down that you'd normally pay for rental. So anyway, just keep that in mind. If you're if you're just starting out, got not a lot of cash, it's a great way to get in for almost nothing. If you're VA or if you're USDA, if you're out in the middle of nowhere, you can get 0% down as well, uh, which is pretty cool. So, all right, moving on. Number three, what's working today in this market, house flipping It's still working in today's market really, really well. In fact, I'm in the middle of a couple of house flips right now that were projected to make like between 50 and 100 grand a piece on Like it's it's awesome because people are paying crazy amounts for houses, uh, but it doesn't mean that every flip goes well. So what are some things that people should know about flipping houses in today's market, especially in the Bay Area where you're seeing like a lot of probably flipping yeah. and competitive
1: This year I've done two so far. I close on my third one either today or or early next week. So I'm still flipping houses out here. In fact, there might not be a market where you can't flip houses if you really think about it, right? Because what stops you from being able to rent properties is either there's no one to rent it. I guess in that market, you couldn't flip houses if there's no one to buy it, but assuming there is. Or the prices are too high for the rent to price ratio to make sense. But prices never get too high if you can just sell it for more than what you paid for it. So that's one of the reasons that I feel like house flipping needs to be a part of your repertoire. Even if that's not like your main strategy, it's not really gonna build you as much wealth because you get taxed so heavy on it. It is a really good way to make money and build capital that you can then reinvest into real estate. And Brandon, I know you've got a couple examples you're flipping houses out there in Hawaii. If you guys have a house to sell, You should definitely hit Brandon up because they're doing that. But everybody needs to have a decent understanding. It forces you to be a better rehabber. It forces you to get better at understanding values. And it forces you to look at a deal and say, what's the highest and best use? Is this a rental? Can I turn it into a multifamily? Can I sell it? Should I wholesale it? Should I buy it and live in it and do a live-in flip? Uh, But what we're doing with house flipping is I'm basically looking at properties that somebody wants to sell usually quick. It's someone who doesn't want me to list it for them as a real estate agent or it's a deal that a wholesaler found that my partner and I and, and we go in on it. So the one I'm buying right now is actually a friend I had that was going into foreclosure. I bailed them out. I stopped the foreclosure process. I gave them a certain amount of time to pay me back. They couldn't pay me back. So instead, I'm taking title to the house. I'm giving them enough money to go and get an apartment complex to live in. They've been able to live like rent-free for six months now. So they've saved up enough money that they can start their life. And I'm taking over title to the house that I stopped. And we're going to fix it up and sell it so I can get my money back and make a profit. Now, that's I'm using that as a specific example because that's not something David Green Realtor or David Green hosts of Pockets podcast can say, I did and you can't do. Everybody out there can build relationships with people in their sphere of influence and say, hey, when you know someone who's in a jam financially or in a jam with real estate, think of me and give me a call. And if you can solve that problem for them and you can set this up, like you can do the exact same thing I did. There's nothing special about this one.
0: Yeah. That's great. Yeah. House flipping is, is, is cool. And there's a few skills you need to be good at. And these are going to sound really familiar because we just talked about them. You need to be good at finding good deals. You need to understand the after repair value or the ARV. In other words, what's a property worth when it's all fixed up? And then you need to understand how to manage a rehab. So it's exactly what we talk about with Burr. It's really like the same, the exact same thing. If you can manage a rehab, if you can manage a deal pipeline, if you can manage analyzing a deal to make sure you're going to make some money on it, House flipping can be a really powerful strategy. Now, the downsides of that, of course, is we are at a toppy market. We are at a very competitive, hot market right now. So if you're going to flip houses in today's market, there's some things you got to be aware of, such as.
1: Well, first, (laughs) what if you can't sell it? So in this house in particular, the house itself is going to be fixed up. And then it's got um, what to describe it kind of like a, a California room or a Florida room in the back. That's humongous. I mean, like probably like 1200 square feet and it has a, it was used as like an entertaining room a long time ago. So it's got this bar built in where it's got the plumbing that you could put in a kitchen and it has a bathroom attached to it. So we can easily take that thing and turn that into a two or three bedroom unit itself with a bathroom and a kitchen and rent that out in addition to the main house that we fixed up. And we have a rental property if if something goes wrong and we can't sell it. That's one of the biggest things is like having multiple exits. Strategies. Yeah. The other thing, if you don't have exit strategies or multiple ones is just make sure there's so much meat on the bone that even if the market turns yep. around, you can still sell it and get your money back. That's a real, I mean, this deal has a ton of equity in it and that's why I'm comfortable doing it. When I saw what this person owed on their mortgage and that they were behind, the reason I was willing to get them caught up was because I knew there's so much equity in this property It would be a shame if the, the bank was going to make a grip. They were going to make a yeah. ton of money if it went to foreclosure. Better that one of us would do it and she would get a little bit of money out of the deal than nothing. Yep.
0: Yeah. That's a great point. Yeah. The meat on the bone thing is so important. I had a buddy reach out a couple of days ago and he said, Hey, I'm looking for a partner to do this flip uh, with me, like a financial partner. Uh, do you know anybody to be interested? Or are you interested in working on it with me? So I looked at it. It was my old, old town and like the purchase price seemed great. It was $30,000. I was like, well, that's a pretty good deal. You know, that's a low price for a property, 30 grand. And the, and then he looked, I looked at the numbers. It was 30 grand for that. It was 70 for the rehab. So it's going to be $100,000 total into it. What was the ARV? What was it worth when it's fixed up? It was 120 or 118. <laughs> and with realtor costs and all that, like his projected profit was $8,000. And I said, like that, now that that's, that was with zero financing. So he wanted a partner to come in and finance the entire thing and then split the profit. And I'm like, you do realize you're talking about somebody putting in a hundred grand to make $4,000 in profit, like in a toppy
1: market, assuming it all goes, assuming perfectly, it all yeah. goes
0: perfectly well. You're talking about making like four, four
1: grand, 4% on best <laughs> yeah. case scenario. Exactly. That is not meat on the bone. That is yes. the chicken wing that like, that somebody has already eaten every single piece. And you're hoping that there's a little yeah. teen, tiny piece of tendon that got left on there.
0: Yeah. And so that's like, I, that my response was like, there's just not enough meat on the bone. I would not touch a flip today. Like in that market, if I wasn't making, you know, in that market, 25, 30 grand in Hawaii, like, I don't want to touch a flip unless it's a hundred. Like our projection yeah. is a hundred thousand dollars. Cause if the market drops and I'm paying 700 grand for a condo, like I got to make sure that if the market drops significantly, I'm not going to be screwed and be a hundred grand under. Yeah. So meat on the bone, very, very important. And yeah, like the one we thought we were going to make a hundred grand profit. looks like we might make 60 boo hoo, you know, like because the comps aren't right where they were. So I'm still doing okay. And the, you know, the comps yep. have softened a little bit in that area. Okay. That's why we project a hundred K because if something goes wrong, we're going to make 60 K, you know, we'll survive. So, uh, and it's, then like you funny. said, good
1: you were going to say multiple exit strategies, right?
0: I was. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I was going to say, it's funny that when you're on that, when you're first getting started, you tend to look at the best case scenario and try to find a way to make it work. And when you've done this for long enough, what you, you just assume like all hell is going to break (laughs) loose on every deal. And that extra meat on the bone is not actually going to be there. It's like chunks of that meat are getting taken off on every deal.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I like (laughs) It, there are a lot of investors out there who come in on budget and on time with every flip. And I'm always very jealous of them guys like, you know, Jay Scott. It's like, yeah, I'm, I'm like three grand under budget. No, I have never, I don't think in my entire life, I don't think I've ever been under budget on any flip I've ever done. Every time yeah. I'm over, even if it's just a few hundred bucks or a few thousand, I'm always, always over budget a little bit. So I just learned to expect that. And I just like ch- chunk in an extra 10 or 20% at the end, knowing that I'm going to be over budget. I'm just not, I don't flip enough to have my systems that perfect so th- to never and go that's over. That's
1: what it comes down to. That's why yeah. Jay does it so well. Is that he does is. this so much. He has yep. the same crews he has, yep. not just he himself, but all the people on his team do this all the time. Yes. They already paid the price going over budget many times in the past. So now they're good. If that's not you, then just expect you're going to pay a lot more than you think and make sure that there's got to be a lot of meat on the bone.
0: Yeah. So for flipping houses, let's talk real quick about financing. So the most popular way to finance a flip is typically what we call the hard money. So hard money are these companies out there that exist to help you fund your deal. And for example, the deal that we're closing that we should make 60 K on, uh, I, do you know, remember Corey Nomoto we had on the podcast? Love Corey. Yeah, Corey's awesome, right? So Corey started a hard money company in Oahu. So like, I called up Corey and we're like, "Hey, can you fund this deal?" So Corey's funding the deal through. I think it's called like Keiko Capital, which I think is K E C O Capital. Um, they're on Instagram, Keiko Capital, K E C O Capital, uh, on Instagram, or you can look at the show notes page. Yeah. Anyway, like they're funding this deal. They're funding. I think what was it, a ninety percent maybe of the purchase price, and like most of the rehab. Uh, and so like, it was very little money out of pocket. Uh, at I mean, rates for hard money used to be like twenty you know, 18, 17% interest rate. Now they've come down, down to like, I've even seen them low, like, like high single digits, but usually low double digits, high single digits for interest. And, you know, maybe a a couple percent fee, we call them points. So as long as you work those into your numbers, hard money can be a fantastic way uh, to get started flipping houses.
1: Absolutely. And I'll tell you this. I don't know that hard money rates will ever be as low as what they are right now. Hard money almost barely is hard money because we're calling it hard money, but this is like what private, equity yeah. or private capital was like for most of the time that I've been investing. Yep.
0: agreed. agree. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And if you guys like supply and demand, there's a lot of hard of yep. uh, hard money lenders out there competing for your business. Uh, in fact, if you guys want to look for a hard money lender in your area, we have a directory. So we don't like pre-screen them, but go to biggerpockets.com slash hard money lenders. And we just have the web's largest directory of hard money lenders. You can just uh, jump in there and check them out. So again, uh, hard money can be a great way to flip houses. But like you said, I want to revisit one thing as we transition to the next segment or the next strategy. You mentioned having multiple exit strategies. So here's what I'm doing because I don't like flipping houses in a toppy market. I don't want to be, I don't want to do all that work and then make no profit. So everything I do has to have a couple strategies. So that one both I'm flipping two condos right now. Both of them are zoned for what we're gonna talk about in a second, which is vacation rentals. So if something goes wrong and or the market starts to drop, I can turn those into vacation rentals and then just rent them out. So that's kind of my exit strategy on those. Other times it would be, hey, I can just fire sale it and get it sold as quick as possible. Other times I'm just gonna do a traditional rental. Uh, other uh, Another example is I'm, I almost flipped a house. It was like a $2 million house. It was a big house and needed half a million dollars worth of work. So my strategy for that, because it was such a big rehab, I was just going to partner with someone like I was going to find someone like somebody wealthy who could bring all of the money and all of the rehab costs. And I was going to manage all of the work. And then we were just going to split it 50 50 the profit at the end. Now, the beauty of that is I might have put in something just to make the person feel comfortable. But the beauty of that is if the market really something went wrong, this person who's a wealthy individual Well, worst case, we just have to hold on to the property, rent it for a few years, and we'll sell it later. So like, you can't lose money if you just hold on long enough, especially in that kind of a situation because there wouldn't be a mortgage. It would just be somebody's capital. So anyway, again, exit strategy is very important. But like I said, my exit strategy is vacation rental. So let's talk about that. I don't think, do you have
1: any vacation rentals? David. No, I don't have any and that's just because they take more time to manage yep. than regular ones do, but I'm not against the strategy at all.
0: Yeah, we should talk about Jay Martin real quick. So, the Jay Martin is a, is a buddy that both of us know. Uh Jay does a lot like he he was in the Bay Area, uh ended up buying a bunch of vacation rentals. He bought some and then he does what we call Airbnb arbitrage. Anyway, ended up just becoming like now he just travels the world, like just like traveling around. Like he doesn't even have a home. He's like he's literally homeless. And uh, his, he has a team of virtual assistants managing the vacation rentals. So it's kind of a cool story and it's a cool strategy for being able to pull something like this off. And I'm again, a lot of people are doing this right now because it's a very popular topic. So vacation rentals, do they only work in vacation areas, David?
1: You know, Probably. Or maybe not vacation areas, right? It doesn't have to be a vacation, but it does have to be somewhere that people are going to travel to. Yes. So a lot of people like Jay, they're doing corporate housing. So they're buying properties that businesses are going to send somebody to. It could be a traveling nurse, a traveling anesthesiologist, a doctor, anybody who's going to be moving around that doesn't want to necessarily pay hotel rates is I would say what your target market
0: is. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And maybe the better term is short-term rentals because short-term rental could be corporate housing, could be vacation rentals, could be whatever. Yeah, like, I mean, I did it for a little while in Grays Harbor County like Washington, which is definitely not a real touristy area. And it worked for a while. I mean, it, just, it was more headache than I wanted, but yeah, it does have to be somewhere that people at least want to travel. But yeah, again, that could be weddings. Like, I mean, I have people that do it in Nashville, people that do it in, I mean, pretty much any city it would probably work in because people travel to cities all the time for mm-hmm. things. If there are hotels, you can probably do a vacation rental. That's kind of exactly the, or, right. or a short-term rental. That said, like I said, I had one for a while and I didn't like it because it's hard to have one. You know what I mean?
1: Like, well, talk about that. Why is it hard to only have one?
0: Because like your systems just aren't there. Like, yeah, it's like like flipping a house a year. It's actually easier to probably flip 20 houses a year than it is to flip one house a year. Because like when you flip 20 houses a year, you've got all these systems and people and processes in place. When you have one vacation rental, like you don't have time to figure out all the automation and all the systems and the virtual assistants and whatever you need to do to run your business because you just have one. So, exactly right. Yeah. So
1: vacation rentals are going to increase your uh, your bottom end, how much money you're going to be making. Yep. But, or maybe I should say your top end. But they're going to also increase the amount of work that you do. And when that workload gets to a certain point, you're going to want to leverage it off. And you need enough income coming in to justify bringing somebody else in, which usually means you need more than one property to, to, yeah. have, to have somebody that manages it for you. So you got to find that sweet spot where, you know, if I have eight of these things, I can pay an assistant to manage it for me, and now I'm making Passive income, theoretically, but numbers one through seven, you're going to be doing some work on those as you're building it up. So that's why this isn't a good idea to just do like as a one off most of the time. Now, if you like doing the work, then that's fine, right? If that's something that you enjoy doing, but that is not Brandon and I, we do not like doing the work. That's probably why we don't do a lot of these short term rentals. The other thing I want to caution people on is you don't know if the laws are going to change. You don't know if the market's going to shift. So when you do this, make sure that you can afford that property if the increased revenue you make from short-term rentals goes down. Now, you may be able to rent it out traditionally, and maybe you don't cash flow, but you have enough money coming in that you're okay. You can survive that. But if you know that's not you, you don't have a lot of money, you don't have additional income, maybe you don't want to buy it if it won't support itself with the traditional rental. Yeah.
0: Method. Yeah, that's a great point. Kind of the exit strategy thing, having multiple exit strategies if you needed it. Yeah, that's my biggest worry about like a lot of people today and with the vacation rental thing, like they're buying properties. And the only way that makes sense is if the laws don't change and if mm-hmm. vacation rentals are always allowed and that the economy doesn't change. But like with every industry, like things are hot for a while and then corporate gets into it and I'll, I'll, like it levels out. The playing field always levels out over to enough time. And so I think that'll eventually happen to... Vac- I mean, we've already seen it happening, right? Rates have dropped a little bit, I think, on, like, on vacation rentals because there's just so much of it. We're back. I feel like back in the day, you couldn't get a, like a short-term rental. It was like $100, $150 a night in some areas. Now you can get like $30 a night. You can rent a house in some areas. Yeah. It's just supply and demand. The more people get into it. So again, make sure that it works outside of that. But here's... A way around that I think is a phenomenal strategy, and I've not personally done it at all, but I know some friends of mine, including like Jay Martin, have done it, and that's that Airbnb arbitrage. Is there's a lot of names for it, but that's what I call it. The idea is this: let's just say David, let's let's say I end up owning this condo that I'm flipping. Let's say the market maybe drops, so I just decide I'm going to rent it out traditionally. I could only get for this condo downtown Kihei, Maui. I could probably get two grand a month, maybe 2,500 as a traditional rental. I could basically break even if I own that as a rental property, but let's say I wanted to, I just said, Hey, that's okay with me. So let's say two grand a month is what I'm getting from my rentals. Just for easy math. David here comes to me and says, Hey, Brandon, you know, like I am a, uh, an Airbnb or vacation rental specialist. What I do is I, uh, I rent properties from landlords like you. And then I turn around and re-rent them out to, On Airbnb, and I do all the work, and so you don't have to hassle it, all the hassle. And in fact, you're only making two grand a month. I'll actually rent it from you for 2,500 a month. So not only are you making more money, but you've got somebody who's a professional taking care of your property. It's getting cleaned all the time. If anything goes wrong, I'll take care of it. You have no risk whatsoever, and you're making more money. Now, David then, is paying $2,500 to me, but he goes and does all the work of renting it out on Airbnb or HomeAway or any of those sites, And now David's renting it out, let's say, for seven grand a month. So David gets to keep the difference. That's why we call it arbitrage. It's Airbnb arbitrage. Now, the danger is, of course, you don't want to lie to your landlord. I never recommend that saying, oh, I'm going to rent it like traditionally. And then you go and sneak around the landlord's back and go and put it on Airbnb. I don't advise that ever uh, because the landlord will find out and then you'll get in trouble and you get, you know, evicted from your own rental. Uh, And you got to make sure that it's zoned appropriately. Like in Hawaii, there's very little that's zoned vacation rental because they don't like vacation rentals. But if you go and target those condo areas or those house areas that are zoned, Airbnb arbitrage is a fantastic model right now.
1: Yeah. That's a really good way. And if it changes and you can't do that, well, what other options do you have? Okay. I'll manage it myself. Well, that doesn't work. Okay. I'll rent it out traditionally. And, and, what if it, you get five or six years of make a good money before the laws change and you can't do it? Well, maybe you made 30, 40, 50 grand, yeah. which isn't anything to shake a stick at. Yeah. And by then, rents have gone up so much that you are cash flowing with the traditional method. Yep. So yeah, and worst know, case, it,
0: you're you don't own the property, you can just you know end the lease. All right, well, thanks, you know, thanks landlord, it was great, and you can exactly be done. Right,
1: yeah. So, so even if it doesn't work out perfectly, that's okay as long as you have options. And that's really the theme that Brandon and I are getting at here: is the more options you have, the less likely you are to lose money.
0: Yeah, there we go. So uh, short term rentals or vacation rentals, great strategy. Uh, Let's go on to number five wholesaling.
1: Wholesaling. What is wholesaling? Wholesaling to sum up, very. distinctly would be putting a property under contract and selling that contract to somebody else, not selling the title to the property. So you have a house, it's worth 150 grand. You agree to sell it to me for hundred grand. I go to someone else. And I say, you can buy it for 110. I never own the property. I never took title. I don't pay the closing costs. I sell the right to buy it for a hundred grand to you. And you give me $10,000 at closing to uh, compensate me for that It's a way that you can get in and out of deals without a lot of exposure, without a lot of capital and without as much uh, risk as far as like like you're still going to have some legal risk if you do it wrong. That's one thing to keep in mind. But there's less risk from the business sense of wholesaling. And there's a lot of people doing really, really good. If you have a skill set for negotiating and you're really good at networking and talking to people and finding deals, but you don't want to deal with the rehab, you don't want to deal with finding money to buy a house, you don't want to be a landlord. You can make a really profitable business doing this.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Wholesaling is interesting. Uh, it is very risky in that if you do it wrong, you could be violating a law. Like, so the, the law that you might hear people say wholesaling is illegal. Like in, in some States they're very, a lot more strict than others. And I never advise ever doing anything that's illegal. So if it might be illegal, don't do it or do it the right way. So here's what we're talking about. It's practicing real estate without a license. That's the key. So if you were look at like, you know, I, I looked it up in Washington once, like, what does it mean to practice real estate without a license? And it was like, you, you know, I gave a list of like a bunch of things, but it, it's basically means you're doing like negotiating, you're, you're marketing, you're basically doing all the work that a real estate agent was do, is going to do. So for you have no oversight, you have no principles, you just go do it. And therefore we have laws against that in the U S. So you have a couple options. One, like, I mean, again, we're not lawyers or, you know, attorneys or CPAs, So make sure you guys get proper legal advice on how to do this in your area. But a couple options that I've seen that people do is one, they get their real estate license. Now you're not practicing real estate without a license. Now there are questions there like, you know, with fiduciary responsibility and stuff, but that's a separate issue that you can deal with at that point. Uh, So anyway, get your license or just buy the property. And then go and resell the property again. So what we call those double closing or whatever, because then you're not, you're not marketing a property you don't own. You just literally just buy a property, which you don't need a license to buy a property. And then you're selling your property. You don't need a license to sell your property. So as long yeah, as you're- you set it
1: all up beforehand. So you set up that the person is going to buy it from yeah. you for whatever price they have. You close on it, you take title, then you sell title to the property instead of the contract.
0: Very yeah, good point. Yeah. So there's ways to do it. Now, there are some lawyers who would say, well, that's violating the intent of the law, not the letter of the law. Therefore, you might get in trouble there too. And if the, if the so, don't do that way. Find a way to do it if you want to do it. It's like that Jim Rohn quote. If you really want to do something, you'll find a way. If not, you'll find an excuse. So like Talk to a lawyer, figure it out. What's going to make it work in your market?
1: Let me, let me jump in with that. Please. For those that might hear Brandon say that and say, oh, that sounds really good. The, the thing is most deals that you get as a wholesaler come from a seller who's in distress. Mm-hmm. Okay. Like picture a person falling off a cliff and you're reaching your hand down to say, hey, I will catch you for the person who's worried that they're going to completely fall off a cliff, go into bankruptcy, lose a property. They don't care if you're offering a hand, if you're offering a strap, if you're saying, well, I'll give you three fingers, but not all five, whatever you got to do legally is still better for them than what's coming. So if you understand the law, you can set it up to where it's not illegal, not immoral and still a win-win for both you and the person. Don't think negatively like, well, this is too hard. If I can't do it this way, then I can't do it at all because most sellers won't care. They just don't want to fall.
0: Yep. Yeah, that's exactly it. So find a way to do it. If you really want to be a wholesaler, find a way to do it right. Get the right consultant, like the right attorney. Talk about it. And again, it works today because flipping works. And most likely you're going to be selling your property to either a burr investor or a flipper. Those are the two people that typically most wholesalers are selling to. Is either a burr investor or a flipper? So go out there and again, find a good deal. All of these things really come down. You have to find a good deal. You have to be able to identify good deals. And so uh, if you need help with that, David and I both are teaching webinars. I've been doing it for four years now. David's just starting on BiggerPockets where we help people learn how to run the numbers on deals. You can sign up anytime, biggerpockets.com slash webinar. So wholesaling. Moving on. Number six, should we talk about it?
1: Yes. All right. Number so six.
0: The last thing that's working in today's market, uh, and it's getting more and more competitive, but that is syndication, meaning larger invest. Like typically, syndication means you're buying like an apartment complex. Or in my case, I'm syndicating mobile home parks. So syndication is basically where you br- you raise money from what we call limited partners. So people who have money but want to just be passive. So you can put money into a syndication and then the syndication, we call them general partners The general partners are the ones that are doing all the work. So, for example, in my syndications or my fund, it's it's very similar, but like I am the general partner along with my partners, guys like Ryan Murdoch and Brian Murray and, and Mike Williams and Walker Meadows. Like we're the GP, the general partners. We do all of the work. The limited partners do nothing, but they write a check or wire money in. And so the, the beauty of syndication is you can take down some pretty large investment properties like huge apartment complexes or whatever. You can do that. I mean, you can even syndicate a single family house if you wanted to or a flip. It's just a little bit more expensive. Uh, so people don't usually do it, but it's it's possible. But the idea is you can buy, you can take down big properties for really no money out of pocket. Uh, and it's working in today's market because rents are going up, because uh, you know people like rents are going up. Uh, there are still a lot of dumpy properties out there that need to be fixed up. So what a typical syndicator will do is buy, let's say, an apartment complex that is $300 under rent, like under market rent. They'll buy it using a syndication, raise rents, manage better, cut expenses, raise income, remodel the units, whatever they got to do. And then everyone gets a good return. And then maybe three, four, five, ten 10 years later, they get, uh, they pay everyone back. They sell the property. It's almost like a flip, but it's over like a five to 10 year period. Is that a good way of explaining syndication?
1: Yeah, that's really good. And the reason that it works is it allows, because the deal is so big, you can chop it up into really small pieces that allow mm-hmm. everyone to specialize in what they are good at. So imagine like a sniper in the army and he's really good at, at taking out the enemy. But you don't want your sniper to be running around looking for bullets and, and finding the their gun and finding the right perch and making sure that they have water and food to eat. You really want them to just be focused on what they do, which is being a sniper. That yeah. would be like the general partner. They find the deal, they take the deal down, and they have people in place that can manage it and make it worth more money. That's exactly what you want out of the person who's the general partner. Now, the limited partners are people who come and supply all the things a general partner would need. Hey, I got a bunch of bullets for you. Don't worry, you don't have to get your own. You can stay looking down the scope and I'll provide the bullets. Hey, I'm going to make some shade for you here so you don't get too hot. Hey, we're going to here's some food for when you're hungry and you need to eat. It allows everybody to focus on the part they're really good at. And when you get to the point that you've got a lot of money and you don't want to have to learn something new, it's really nice to just provide the bullets, let somebody else go make money with it and then come back and give you your portion.
0: Yeah. So anyway, so syndication, super powerful if you can make it work. It's just it's a complex, more uh, complicated process. Uh, Again, I just did my very first one. I just closed my first fund. Uh, We just started a second one Uh, and then it gets more complicated because like. You got to learn like, can you work with accredited investors or not accredited investors, and so I had to like, learn to navigate that. And so it's just been a, it's been a huge learning process, but it's a phenomenal uh, tool in today's market uh, to be able to I guess grow wealth very rapidly by taking a small bit of a much larger deal. Anything else you want
1: to add on the? Yeah, why don't we talk a little bit about things people should be aware of when investing in syndication so they don't lose money?
0: Mm, good call. Yeah, so the most important thing I think is the team. Like it really, like, do you, because here's the deal, like, here's what I would say. Like I've had people come to me and they're like, Brandon, can you look, like friends of mine, you know, hey, I, I'm looking at doing this syndication. Can you look at this these numbers and tell me if you think this is a good deal or not? And what I always say is, Like, are you going to go knock on Miss Betty Johnson's door at 50617C, you know, apartment nine? Are you going to go knock on her door and be like, hey, Betty, uh, it says here in the documents that your rent is 875. Is that true? Of course you're not going to do that. In other words, you're completely trusting the person to have not lied about what the rent is. You have no idea. And so it's like the engine analogy you use about you open up your car engine. You're like, oh, it looks like I got a problem in here. Just take it to a car, like a car, because we don't know what we're doing when we fix a car. It's the same thing. Like, no,
1: you don't. But yeah. the mechanic is what matters, right? Yes, the mechanic, I don't, the mechanic yep. could lie to me. He yep. can say, oh, you got, and that's our biggest fear when you don't understand cars. So yes. when you find a trustworthy mechanic, yep. that's where you like grab a hold of that person and never let go. Yep. That's who your operator is. And that's, I think you said that perfectly, Brandon. Thank and you. this isn't just you and I, this is every successful, wealthy person we know. Yeah. The higher that you get into people that are successful, the more that they start to say, I trust the operator more than I trust the deal. I don't look as much at the numbers. I look at them briefly, but like you said, they could fudge numbers. Anybody can make numbers show whatever they want them to say. I trust the integrity of the person doing the deal. So yes, Brandon, you're 100% right. That's the first thing people should look at.
0: Yeah. So look at the team. Look at the people in there. Do they have the the balance sheet? Do they have the experience? Do they kind of know what they're doing? (laughs) Like if this is I'm not saying you shouldn't necessarily work with someone's first syndication. but here's an example. So I just started my very first syndication. Like, yes, I'm a trustworthy guy. I like to think I'm here on a podcast. But let's be honest, like you guys listen to me on a podcast every week. Does that mean you should trust me? Probably not. Just because I talk on a podcast. However, can you trust my actions? Can you look at previous deals? Probably. But even so, I brought in a guy named Brian Murray to be like our asset manager. Brian Murray wrote like a a book, uh, Crushing It in Commercial Real Estate and Apartments or something like that. I probably just butchered the name. Anyway, Brian Murray like owns like, a ton of real estate, like hundreds, like thousands of rent, uh, rental units already. He's already done syndications, already done, So I brought him in because now I attach my credibility to Brian. And so it makes me now much more credible. So again, like it doesn't mean that if you're brand new, you can't go and do a syndication, but you may have to attach yourself to somebody with more credibility or with more experience so that you can, uh, you know, borrow their experience and credibility as well. So again, that when is- you're looking into a thing look for that.
1: Exactly right. So this is like Brandon said, okay, you guys can trust me. I'm trustworthy. I'm opening a mechanic shop. We're not going to do you wrong. And you say, well, that may be true, but you've never actually worked on a car. So I may trust (laughs) you, but I don't know if I trust your experience, right? Like, that's okay. I got this guy. He used to work for NASCAR. He's worked on cars the last 20 years. He's written books on it. He teaches other people how to work on cars. He's my mechanic. At that point, I don't really have to ask a whole lot of questions. And that's exactly what you did. And that's what you want to look for in a syndication is track record. It doesn't have to be the, Main person's track record, but somebody on that team should have experience, should have done this before, and should know what they're doing. Yeah,
0: that's so true. Yeah, so look for that when you're going to invest in a team. So look at the team. Also, look at the. I mean, look at what they're doing. Does it align with what you want? I mean, like when we did our fund, we specifically said we do not want to be controlled by the by uh, a promise to investors. So, like I know a lot of syndications. Like, say we want to be in and out in four years. But I said, you know what? I don't care. I want a cash flow fund because I care about the cash flow. So if it takes six years to sell and get the money back or nine years, so be it. We're going to do whatever the market is, is best. And so like you need to look in a line. Does this align with what your goals are? If you need quick in and out, don't go into a fund like mine where we might be in for 10 years. But if you want to be in for 10 years, don't go with the guy who's going to get your money back in two years. So make sure that the goal of the syndication or of the fund aligns with your goals, what you want to accomplish. Uh, same with like there's cash flow. There's, there's funds and syndications that work more for cash flow. There's ones that work more for appreciation. I'm in a couple of deals right now on syndication deals. Where like we get very little cash flow, but it is mostly based on that apartment complex getting uh, sold for way higher later. It's almost like a flip. So the cash flow, I mean, it's not we're not losing money, but there's not a lot of cash flow now. And I knew that going into it because I I wanted I was a, that's the type of investment that it was. So just make sure you understand what you're getting into when you're going to go into a syndication. And we actually have a book on that. I won't talk too much about it now, but we have a book coming out soon at Bigger Pockets on that topic of how do you evaluate on other people's syndications. So. Check it out. You heard it here first. It's coming out sometime in the next year.
1: Beautiful. Well said,
3: I'm curious. Have you been struggling to keep your vacation rental booked? Curious to see what you could be earning? You can get a personalized income estimate right there. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised at what Vacasa can do for you. Check out BiggerPockets.com slash Vacasa, spelled V-A-C-A-S-A. BiggerPockets.com slash Vacasa. Listen
2: up, business owners, because I've got some quick little math for you. Fewer costs equal more profit. The problem? You're spending more than ever on operations, materials, deliveries, software, and more. So why not reduce your costs and headaches with NetSuite by Oracle? NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Oh, also, NetSuite lives in the cloud, which means you can reduce IT costs with no hardware required. Cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because now you've got one unified business management suite. You can improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform slashing manual tasks and errors. It makes sense that over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. So don't let rising costs sink your business growth. And by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind, flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash biggerpockets. netsuite.com biggerpockets. netsuite.com biggerpockets. You've heard us talk about it before. That's F-U-N-D-R-I-S-E dot com slash pockets. This is a paid endorsement for Fundrise. Past performance is not indicative of future results. All investments can lead to loss.
1: Okay, let's move on to the fun stuff. Let's get into the (laughs) Accelerants.
0: All right, so let's get into the accelerants. So these are things that can help improve any of those six strategies that make these things happen. It's like pouring fuel on a fire. True story, one time, David, I don't know if I've ever told you the story. So I had a fire at my house. I like was in high school and I had this bonfire. You know, We do that all the time and- it went out and so I was like, ah, oh, bummer. It went out. So of course what I do, I grab the can of gasoline and I just start pouring it all over the ga- the fire that had gone out. Of course, we all know that the fire didn't really go out. Just, you know, there were coals down there. Like it literally just blew up huge in front of me. And then I look down and I'm holding this gas tank that is burning. Like the actual gas oh. canister is just on fire. And I was like, ah, and I just, as hard as I could, chucked it into the woods, which is probably also not a good idea to turn the woods. <laughs> Luckily it went out in the air. But see, what I did is I was pouring accelerant on a fire. That's exactly what we're going to talk about here today. Do you like that? That's a oh good analogy, right?
1: If that doesn't describe how you live your life, man, I don't know <laughs> what <it> does. Praise <laughs> the Lord that you didn't just start a forest fire.
0: <laughs> just burned down the whole neighborhood. Yeah. All right, guys. It was an accelerant. All right. So we're going to pour some fire on this right now to make your your investments produce more revenue, higher returns, and have a lot more fun doing it. So first one. What do you got, David?
1: O-P-M. Learn those three words. This is other people's money. Now, it doesn't have to be a friend or a family member, though it can be. There's lots of OPM. You've got seller financing. You've got partnerships with other people. You've got private money. You've got Mm -hmm. hard money. You can do the syndication we talked about. There's lines of credit. The point is, when you get really good at doing deals, what will naturally limit you will be, oh, this is good. Like there's only so much gas. It doesn't matter how good you are at building a fire. If you run out of gasoline, you can only go so far. Mm. So what if other people bring your gasoline?
0: Yeah, other people are bringing gas tanks over to your house. So you can pour That's it on exactly the fire. right. Yeah. <laughs> and you just
1: focus on keeping that fire going or building new fires and you let other people come and put the fuel in them. That's what you want to do. Now, it's dangerous if you start having people bring you gas before you know how to build a fire. They're going mm. to lose their gasoline. You're not going to make anything comfortable from it. So you do want to have an idea what you're doing before you really ramp this up. But once you've got an idea how to make money in real estate, having other people bring your gas can really ramp things up.
0: Yeah. Well, so true story. So remember earlier, I said, we're doing a couple of flips right now. One, we're going to make, you know, probably 60 K if it goes well, one, we're going to make over right around hundred K. So I'm doing that with a partner. So I brought in a guy, I've mentioned this on the show before, but a guy named Greg. So Greg came to me and we decided to work together. Greg is doing these deals for no money down other people's money. Whose money is he using? He's using a little bit of my money and the hard money lenders money. So Greg is the one that's hustling. He's out there. I mean, every day he's at the auctions. He's out there checking contract, talking to contractors. He's out there doing all the work because what Greg has is hustle and time. What I don't have is time right now. I'm just too busy with a million things like trying to buy 1300 mobile home units. And so like, but so it worked out perfect for me. So in other words, when people say you can't do deals from no money down, like look at Greg. He's going to make like, you know, he's getting 50% of the profit. If we make 30 on that one and 50 on the other, I mean, he'll make 30 and 50. That's 80 grand in like three months off of no money down. Uh, and we, yeah, we, we, we wholesaled the deal actually last week for like 16 K. He made eight on that one, no money down. So again, don't believe that you can't do it. It can pour a lot of gasoline on your fire. So learn the art of that. And in fact, it would be really great if somebody wrote a book on like how to invest in real estate with no and low money down. That'd be awesome. Yeah.
1: But I mean, if only life worked out that
0: (laughs) way. All right. Biggerpockets.com slash no money. Let's go to the second one here. The idea of value add. You, You added that one to our list here, David. What do you mean by value add? And why is that an accelerant?
1: So as a real estate, oh, by the way, I just passed my real estate broker's license. So now I'm no longer just an agent. I'm actually a broker. Look at you, fancy. And one of the fancy things they teach us is this concept of highest and best use. And it's the way of looking at a property and saying, what is the very best best way that this could be used to maximize its value, which is usually involving some kind of money. So it's a good way to train your brain to look at situations. A coach does this with a player. This person's really talented. How do I maximize the talent they have for what our team can do? A business owner or a manager does this with an employee, a parent does with with their kids, if they're a good parent. Uh, With property, we want to look at what can I do to add value to a property? Now, if you're flipping houses, you want to make it worth as much as it can be. If you're renting properties, you probably probably want to make it a combination of making it worth more with increasing the rent. If it's a multifamily property, it's what can I do to increase my NOI? But the principle remains the same. So what I like to do anytime I'm looking at a property is say, what would be the highest and best use of this deal? So in the flip example I gave earlier, we're going to look at at the end when it's fixed up, would it be better to sell it and get this much money and have this much of a return on our money? Or would it be better to keep it, rent it out, and split the cash flow between me and my partner? It's very simple. We just look at both options and we say the one that makes the most sense. But if we add a ton of value on both ends, we have options. And again, options are what are actually going to build you wealth. So buying properties under market value and fixing them up through the rehab forces equity. It forces a property to be worth more. Buying properties that are like a split level and taking the basement and finishing it so you can rent it out. It forces value. It creates value where there wasn't anything there raising the rents when you buy a multifamily property it forces the value to go up reducing the expenses same idea you always want to be looking at okay i got a great deal i'm under market value i'm going to cash flow i'm going to buy it that's good don't stop there what can i do to put icing on the cake what can i do to make it even better for myself what can i do to give myself more options that's what we mean by value add that's
0: good Yeah, it's good. Uh, One thing we're doing for value add right now, like in my business, I mean, besides flip flipping is kind of a value add. But one thing we're doing is uh, with the mobile home park thing is we're deliberately looking for mobile home parks that have vacancy, like between 10 and 30 percent vacant. Why? Because then we can force equity, force value by bringing in homes. So we bring in trailers, like rent them out or sell them. And now we just forced equity. Uh, And so that's one thing I like about forced equity in today's market is because you don't have to rely on the market going up. You rely on your own ability to make the value of the property go up. So yeah, value added very, very powerful in today's in today's world.
1: And that's what one of the things that I help my clients with. They come to me and they say, hey, David, I want a house hacker. I want to buy a rental property. And it's hard right now. There's not yeah. a lot of them. So that's what we do is we sit down and say, hey, we're going to find you properties that have an upstairs unit and a downstairs unit. We can easily split them in half and rent them out as two separate units, like very yeah. similar to what you did when you bought your yeah. Hawaii property. And that's kind of the way you got to look at it. It's going to it's not going to be easy. You're not just they're not fishing a barrel right now. But that doesn't mean that you can't catch fish. And so uh, look for ways that you can add value to make a deal in today's market. Very good point.
0: Speaking of fish, you know, some people catch the fish, David. Some people clean the fish, to use your analogy. And what we're talking about is some people are good at certain things. And so you really gotta leverage other people, which is our third accelerant today, is what leveraging others. Wasn't that amazing? Expertly mm-hmm. done, Brandon. Thank this you. is why you're it's the like- host I'm the co-host. <laughs> <laughs> it's like-, like I've podcasted before. What do you mean by <laughs> leveraging
1: others? Yeah, so leveraging is a is a cool word, but it basically means using other people's stuff for your own benefit, right? <laughs> <laughs> and that's that's where you want to be in life. Like I have, a, like theoretically, everything Brandon and I have talked about is a business. If you look at it like a business, and there is a place you can get to where you're doing nothing, you just put all the pieces in place that needed to be put there, and they're they're doing all the jobs that are involved in your business, and then you hire someone else to manage those people. So if a piece falls out, that person has to go find it. Right. Like there's a way that you can insulate yourself from having to do a lot of work. Now, borrowing other people's money is a form of leverage. Yep. Using a construction crew to rehab your property is a form of leverage. Financing it with the bank, um, using a property manager. These are all forms of leverage, which we accept all the time. Well, I don't think it was a th-
0: bad thing either. Right. Like like I'm leveraging Greg, my partner on the flipping, because he's got all this time and, and the hustle. So I'm le- like I'm using Greg. He's using me because I have the money and the connections with the re- and, and the resources to pull off the financing and to kind of organize this. So we're using each other. It's not a bad thing. It's a great thing.
1: No, it's actually, if you're leveraging a rehab crew, you're putting food on somebody else's table for their family, right? Like you're literally a lead for that person. They're looking for you to get business from you. They want to be leveraged by you. Like as a real estate agent, you're leveraging me to do a lot of the work for you and represent you on a deal. I have knowledge and experience that you don't have. I'm using all of those things to help you accomplish what you want. That's what I want. I'm spending all my time looking for people like you saying, please leverage me. Well, I do the same thing with my business and the four people that I leverage the most are the people I, talked about in long distance real estate investing, your core four, your lender, your property manager, your contractor, and your deal finder. And uh, you should be using those people for as much as you possibly can. You and I get asked questions all the time. Should I open an LLC or should I buy it in my own name? That's really something that should be leveraged onto a CPA. Uh, How do I find a deal? That's something that you should leverage onto a deal finder. Uh, what's something else? How do I know if this market's a good market or not? You should be asking your property manager. You should be asking other investors. You should be asking people that know it. They're all there to help you build wealth and that's how they make money themselves. So use them to do a lot of the work that most of us try to do ourselves.
0: Very good. Very good.
1: What are, who are some of the people you leverage the most in your business?
0: I mean, there's obviously Ryan Murdoch who was on the show recently. I think that show came out already when this one airs, uh, Ryan Murdoch. He helps run a lot of my business. Again, I'm Brian Murray. Like I said, uh, Walker, uh, Walker Meadows and Mike Williams. Like that's kind of my team. Uh, and then Greg, like who's helping, you know, doing the flipping side of things. So like everyone has a role of something that they're really good at that we're, you know, but also things like I got a property manager on different properties. My mother-in-law helps manage some properties of ours. I mean, there's uh, like people
1: all over. I mean, you. Let me ask you. Let me. Oh, you leverage me. I leverage you to
0: have a good show. Otherwise, this show would be Ah, horrible.
1: (laughs) I like that. Very well done. Let let me ask you two questions about your team. Could you do what you're doing and make the money you're making without those people? Yeah, not at all. Okay. Now, a lot of people stop and say you're taking advantage of them. Now, let me ask the next question Could those people make the money they're making and do what they're doing without you?
0: I don't think so. I'm mean, Brian. Could.
1: It's very, it's, yeah, but probably, but you're, but you're well, providing no. gasoline for Brian, right? Yes. Yeah. Cause we well, can do more with yeah. you. Yeah. Right? Cause
0: my skill. And, my skill is being able to raise money. So like I can talk about money uh, and I can raise money from accredited investors where Brian, his skill is like managing and building, you know, yeah. This machine, maybe brian the is the
1: guy that he can help build the fire in that way and you're actually bringing gasoline to him in other maybe. situations you build the fire and people bring the gasoline to you it's all beautiful when we're all doing our part and we're all making it work so yeah. don't look at leverage like it's a bad thing that's the point i'm trying to make in the best relationships you focus on what you're good at and you let them focus on what they're good at and you have kind of a harmony
0: all right next accelerant Let's talk about the funnel real quick. And we talk about this a lot. So I don't have to spend a lot of time on this, but I always say everything's a funnel. And so, especially in your business, like, are you tracking how many leads you're getting in and how you're getting them? Are you tracking how many offers you're making? Are you tracking how many, uh, you know, deals you're analyzing? If not, start doing that. Start tracking what you're doing. I mean, it's like things you track tends to get better. So anytime, here's what I'm, here's the point I'm trying to make. Anytime a newbie comes to me and says, I can't find any deals. I always ask them the same three questions. How many offers did you make last week? How many deals did you analyze? And then how many leads came across your desk? And the answer 100% of the time is somewhere one of those is I didn't I don't have any. Like one of those three is, I don't have any. Well why not? It's really that simple. Like you you don't you didn't make any offers? Well why not? Well I didn't I didn't have any problems to make an offer on. Okay, well why not? You did you did you analyze them? Well, no, I didn't really analyze any deals. Okay, well why not? Well, I didn't have any leads. Okay, so we know where the problem is at. It's leads. Why not? What are you going to do for leads this week? Like it just Work, know your funnel, work your funnel, and that will diagnose where your problem is so you can go and fix it.
1: There you go. That's beautiful. And if you get to the point where you realize where you have to fix your problem and you're not fixing it, you have a mindset problem. Shift Mm, your focus off off of that. You know, what what, what word would we use for that? You know, the logistics of it and get it into your mindset to figure out why you're not taking action.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so true. Yeah. The mindset thing is because a lot of us know what we need to do. In fact, Josh, Josh Dorkin, his uh a keynote speech at the BP Con this year was called like you know what you need to do or you know what to do. And his idea was his, his point was basically like we all know deep down what it is we should probably should be doing. Like we know we need to do direct mail marketing or we know we need to go to that local meetup. We just oftentimes don't do it. We don't trust ourselves or we listen to other people's advice. We know what we need to do. So go out there and like Do it. And if you're not doing it, it's a mindset thing. Get yourself a performance coach or something like Mm -hmm. someone you can talk with or a therapist or a mastermind group or a journal like and start taking some intentional planning around what those steps are and why you're not accomplishing them.
1: Yeah. This is why Brandon and I talk about it a lot because people come to us and they say, Hey, I'm stuck. I have people reach out to me all the time and say, David, I have this problem. I'm stuck. What do I do? And it's usually not a logistical answer. It's not a, Oh, you need to call this person or you need to change this about your rehab. It's, it's almost always a mindset thing. So don't take that for granted. That's why we bring people on the show to talk about mindset or authors of books that help with that fact, because that's such a huge component of being successful.
0: Yeah. It's so true. All right. Next, what do you want to talk about? Another
1: accelerant. Let's get into partnerships.
0: All right. I like it. That's a good one.
1: So a partner is a form of leverage. We kind of already talked about this, but I want to dive specifically into three things that you can look for in a partner or three different uh, ways to partner. The first would be a personality. You want somebody who's an opposite personality of you. The next would be a skill set. You want someone who has a complementary skill set to yours. You don't necessarily want the same thing. And the third would be resources. Somebody who has resources that are different than yours. Brandon, can you pick one of those and comment on how you've seen that work in, in either your life or people you know? <laughs> well, we, jo-
0: we were joking about before this call where Ryan is like, you know, if you look at the disc profile, there's D-I-S-C. And I typically means like you're, you, li- you want to be liked. You want people to like you. Um, you're super personal so I'm a very high eye Ryan is like a negative eye like he's like the exact opposite so like yesterday we had like this guy over at my house looking at my air conditioning unit which Ryan was hanging around with me like we were talking to the air conditioning guy and I'm like you know the thing is not working right it's not it's not cooling my house the way it's supposed to so I'm just like okay well you know yeah I mean I am not really sure why it's doing it and he's just like you guys told us to install this system it's not working why not like he's very direct because he doesn't he doesn't have the high eye disorder that I have, right? <laughs> so we have a we have a opposite personality in that way. And it works really, really well because sometimes you need to be a nice guy and you need to have everyone like you. And so you can do things like raise money or do a podcast or whatever. But other times you need to yell at a contractor. And so by having people around you like in a partnership that have that complimentary skill set and personalities, it's helped me tremendously.
1: How about I you? think you and I probably have a similar thing going on. Yeah. Right, like you've had times where you're dealing with a contractor and you're like, "This guy's frustrating." I'm like, give me the phone. Yeah, yeah not be frustrating yeah. for me, right?
0: <laughs> and you're I kind of like times- Ryan in that way. You just like, you like, "I don't care if people like me." I'm going to get very them. much.
1: Yeah. But that doesn't always work good, right? There's times I need you to look at an email I'm going to send to be like, can <laughs> you reword this for me so it doesn't blast them in the face like I think it's going to. And in that way, we really help each other. And the podcast, I hear all the time, you and I have a really good chemistry. We play different roles. You, you, do a, uh, you play a function in the podcast of keeping it moving smoothly, transitioning very easily from one thing to the next, keeping it lighthearted. And I do a little bit more where I can kind of come in like a jackhammer and get to the bottom and pull out a point it's it makes the show way better this is an example of what you want in a partnership and we're saying this because we don't want people to just go find a partner that they like and say this is my friend we're going to do it together that's an emotional insecurity that you're trying to fix and notice that was not one of the three things that we said you should look for in a partner
0: yeah Mm, Agreed.
1: So number two would be skill sets. You want a person with a different skill set than you. And I think a good example of this would be Brandon and and Brian, like what you were just saying earlier about Brian Murray. He has, he has an analyzer's brain. He has an operator's brain. He can manage an asset really well. He's done it for a long time. He sees potential problems that are going to come up and has a solution for them. This is a guy that can keep a car on the road. He can manage the, the fine turns that have to happen and he can keep something under control. You are a blast of NOS that makes a car go fast. That's who Brandon Turner is. If you're around him, this is exactly what he does. So your role in that relationship is to make the thing go quickly. You're the accelerant. Brian's job is to keep it on the rails. And this is when you told me he was your partner. It was like a blessing from God because I realized that's exactly what Brandon needs. Brandon needs a person that can step in and say, no, we're not going to do it. Or if we're going to do it, we do it this way. And then you figure out a way to make it happen because that's what your skill is. This is a That's a perfect partnership from a skill set perspective
0: yeah that's really good yeah the skill set things are vital that book traction talks about have having the integrator and the uh what's it the integrator and the visionary because they're two visionary. different skill sets yeah like somebody's the, the the guy with the vision with the idea of let's go here and the ideas and and somebody else has to make it work and the two people are hardly ever the same so hmm. yeah two different skill sets entirely beautiful Okay. And
1: the third one would be resources, right? And we kind of touched on this earlier when we talked about somebody has the money, someone has the time, someone has the experience, maybe somebody has the deals. A good example of this would be my flip partner, Mario and I. So Mario, he grew up with his dad as a contractor. He knew construction inside and out. He's really good at looking at a property and figuring out how to make it look perfect and really nice for a cheap amount of money. He has good labor. He has a, a really tight rehab crew. I am not that guy. I don't have those resources and I don't necessarily want them. I'm really good with numbers and I'm really good with um, pushing things through. So I can get the deal, put it under contract. I negotiate really well. I can know what we're going to make on it. I can say yes or no, depending on how the, the numbers are going to work. And he hates that. He just wants to be out there like getting sawdust all over the place. That's right? awesome, yeah. So we we have a really good mix of resources where I provide something that he can't find. Uh, which is usually the financing and the overall plan. And Mario provides us stuff that I'm not always going to have. He's really good with relationships. He he knows people that bring us deals all the time. And then he he rehabs it. So when I work with him and I do a deal, even though I'm only getting 50%, it's so easy. I love it. I've never, ever complained about a deal that I did with him. I probably never will, which makes me want to do it more. So that's an example of when you're picking a partner, find someone who has resources that you don't have.
3: Yeah,
0: that's really good. Really good. All right, well, we got to get this show kind of wrapped up, but before we do, we're going to ask a few more questions here at the end, but I want to get I wanted to take a second and find out what's going on this week over on the Bigger Pockets Business podcast.
2: Hey there, Brandon and podcast listeners. This is Jay Scott, your host of the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast. This week on the Business Podcast, we have the founders of an app company called Fetch Rewards. After winning a business plan competition in college, they took their winnings and started a company that, that is now grossing over $20 million per year and has raised over $50 million in investment. They tell us how they did it and they provide us a ton of great tips for how you can get your venture off the ground as well. So, Tune in Tuesday on the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast and check it out.
0: All righty, all righty. Alright. thank you, Jay Scott, about uh, you know giving us an update on what's going on with your show. I got a couple questions here, not the famous four, those because you and I have answered those questions many a times. I want to throw a couple other questions. We call this the the sub famous four. David, what is something you enjoy doing that you never get tired of?
1: Uh, I like hanging out with you and having in-depth, meaningful conversations about stuff that actually matters. So pretty much every time I leave hanging out with you, I feel lighter, I feel better, and I have a new plan for kind of where I want things to go. And I don't know that there's ever been a time that I've been around you and I was like, God, I'm just sick of this, dude. It just uh, never really happens.
0: Well, I enjoy those as well. Thanks. Uh, All right. What do you got for me? Random question.
1: Random question. What is something about yourself that you would change if you could and not have to tell anybody about it?
0: Wow, we're going deep. Hmm. Wow, what is something about myself I would change? You know, I wish I naturally was motivated and not like set myself up for games to get it all done, if that makes sense. Like I journal and I have to like remind myself to like, do things like take my wife on a date and I have to make sure it's in my calendar to do like family time. Like I wish I like just naturally was good at balancing, but I'm not. Is that
1: why you're so disciplined about that stuff?
0: Probably. I'm, Cause that's thought I'd be, a, I'd be a nightmare without it.
1: Let me give you some encouragement. I've noticed that the things that people teach the best are the things that they struggled with the most to be good at. Mm. And the people who are naturally talented usually make the worst coaches. So even though you probably wish that you were better at being naturally motivated, all the rest of us benefit from stuff like the 90-Day Intention Journal and everything you teach because that's tough for you.
0: Well, thanks. Do you want to know another interesting thing. I, I, You and I, I think thing was you and I talking about this. Maybe it was me and someone else at the BP con. Do you know the area of my life? I mean, this is, this is getting deep and personal here, but the area of my life that I, my entire life, I have struggled more than anything else with self-esteem has been my voice. Always my entire life. It's like, so I've made fun of as a kid all the time. I had speech therapy. Isn't it ironic that the thing that I am most uh, embarrassed by, or I struggled with from a self-esteem standpoint is the thing that I make the most money from in my life and the, like the, the most important thing that I do really from my like, business standpoint and that everything else stems from is my greatest weakness. I mean, there, I've, there's I've a
1: thought that about you. Because when you when you shared the two are things yeah. you were insecure about and you said what was your voice, I remember thinking afterwards, yeah. like, how cool is it that that's what was used to help everybody? Because if you didn't have a voice, you know, I wouldn't be here. A lot of people wouldn't be here. So isn't that a great example of like how having the intestinal fortitude to move forward in spite of being insecure or worried can lead to huge blessings in your life?
0: Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I mean. If I would have like, and this goes to anybody, whatever you're insecure about, if you just like, if you hold on to that insecurity forever and just say like, no, this is what, like, this is who I am. I'm insecure. So therefore I'm not going to do that thing or I'm not going to put myself on a limb because of that insecurity. Like you never know what could have become uh, of you and uh, how the world could use that. So yeah, oh,
1: that is deep. Uh, deep.
0: <laughs> anyway. All right. Uh, David, how has your real estate journey been different than what you imagined?
1: I, I never thought I would be a salesperson ever in a million years. I'm probably the worst at sales. The way you're insecure about your voice, I'm very insecure about my people skills. Hmm. It's I was the most shy, conservative, awkward person. If you ask my buddy, Kyle Ranke, he got interviewed on the BP uh, Money podcast. I was the best man at his wedding. Everybody thought I looked like I worked in the Secret Service. I just (laughs) didn't know how to I don't know how to make small talk. I was horrible, (laughs) horrible at it. Right. I just wanted to get right to the point with everything. No frills. It was very I think like being my friend was like rubbing sandpaper on your face. (laughs) I honestly think that for like the people that are in my life, they would probably tell you the same thing and to have to move into a position where you have to be charismatic, and engaging and funny and encouraging and all these skills that I never valued is I didn't expect I'd ever be helping other people build wealth through being a real estate broker and having a team. And now I have a a mortgage company. That was a big shock. I never thought I'd be a personality that had to teach what I was doing to other people at this scale ever. I just, I'm a very private person. I don't like to share stuff. Um, I do it because like you do, we recognize that it's good for other people and it's like good for us to step out of that comfort zone. But if you'd have told me 10 years ago, you're going to be like the top producing agent in your area, I would have probably laughed at you. (laughs)
0: That's actually very similar to my story with the speech thing It's like the thing that you thought was like your biggest limitation was actually has proven to be like one of your greatest assets. So cool.
1: Thank you. Okay. One more question for you. Let me think about what could we give that would be really, really good. If you could have any gift in the world, if you could be good at any one thing, what would it be?
0: Is this like one of those like if you could have one wish, I'd wish for more wishes. <laughs> can I wish for more wishes? Not a wish. Can it's I be, be a thing? Can I be really good at at uh, asking for more things to be good at? There we go. <laughs> so, okay. Question again was what if if I if, be, you,
1: if you could be really good at anything, what would you pick to be really good at? Playing the guitar, having a six pack, being taller than you are, being shorter than you are. What would you ask for?
0: Mm, I want to be. I would. I want to be. I would be good at surfing. Cause I'm not good okay. at surfing, but that is a skill. I think that would be great to be good at.
1: Is there any studies that have shown that the taller you are, the harder it is to surf? I don't know. Like it's probably got to be a lot trickier to with your center of balance when you're doing it. I'm thinking of any kind of balancing sport, gymnastics, snowboarding, They're surfing, yeah, they're almost always shorter people mm. that, that do that better. Well,
0: we're gonna say that's why I'm not very good. I'm, it's not the fact I that I don't.
1: I think you're you're pretty dope. It's easy to see you when you're out there. I'll tell you that. <laughs> well, thanks. You're like this. You're like this super tall and super white tree that's that it. just stands out amongst everybody else <laughs> out there. If well, you were drowning, out, it would be easy to find
0: you. Here, here's the truth, though, and this is why it's a difficult question to ask: is what skill would you or like what would you want to be good at? It's because the truth is that all of us can be good at pretty much every skill. Like I'm not I'm not a great surfer because I don't surf very much like i maybe max once a week it's been like three weeks since i've been out if i wanted to be an amazing surfer i could be an amazing surfer i'm sure if i want to be so it's like the question is like what would you be good at if you didn't have to try it, the answer would be surfing yeah, i would love to be great if i didn't have to
1: try um that's a good point well i mean yeah. there's things maybe like having a really good singing voice that you may not ever be able to yeah do maybe or something like that i'm really athletic But for most things, if they're skill-based, yeah, you could do it. But what would you like if you didn't have – if the skill fairy just touched you on the head and was like, here, you are blessed, what would you pick? Skill fairy,
0: I like it. Speaking of fairies, uh, Rosie yesterday opened up, got a package in the mail from from her Nana, from her grandma and opened it up and it was a fairy costume. And so she's not taking it off, I don't think, other than the sleep in the last 24 hours. It's cute. That's adorable. Yeah, you'll love it. You'll see it next time. So, all right, well, we got to get out of here. So David, anything you want to take us out with uh, any final piece of advice or anything before we get out of here?
1: Yeah, I think it's really important to end it with what we started, which is understanding real estate is never going to be the same all the time. No business is going to be the same all the time. Yeah. There was a time when emails were a revolutionary concept and you made a ton of money by sending emails, and it's getting to the point that nobody wants to see spammy emails anymore. Um, same for social media and everything else. You have to adopt a mindset that's okay with change, that embraces change. Usually, change doesn't come at a rapid pace, but you got to keep moving. You can't think, well, I just finally learned it, I'm done. You always have to be looking for new things. And to today's market. It's really hard to find a contractor. It's really hard to find a deal. It's very easy to find money. It's very easy to find creative ways to do it. There's a ton of information like Brandon and I out here. It's better and it's worse in many ways than it ever was before. And 10 years down the road, it will be better and it will be worse in different ways than it ever was before. So look for ways to maximize the benefits, look for ways to minimize the the struggles and the hurdles, and you'll continue to build wealth.
0: That is amazing. Well, Mr. David Green, where can people find out more about you and connect with you at
1: best way to get a hold of me is on my Instagram, David green, 24. Um, if you guys want any advice for like, if you live in the Bay area, especially I put meetups up out here. We just did one the other day. I'd love to be able to meet more people in person that that's really fun. Uh, email is tough for me to get to. My phone is really tough for me to get to, but I really try hard to, to reply to everybody on Instagram. How about you, Brandon?
0: Yeah, I I actually am not very good at responding to Instagram direct messages anymore because I just get too many of them. Uh, you can try, but follow me on Instagram if you want to follow my life, and I post a lot of stuff there. And if you want to know more about my investment stuff, like raising money, the funds, if you're an accredited investor, ODC, like Open Door Capital, ODC Fund.com. All right. Well, Thank you, David Green, for being this duet with me today. Hopefully, people got a lot out of this. If it is, share it with somebody you know. Uh, post it on your, uh, you know, Facebook page. Uh, comment below in the in the comment section of the actual show notes, which is at biggerpockets.com/show358. And you can check out other links there, and I think even the transcription I think should be there. And uh, that's about all I got. So why don't you take us out of here, David
1: Green? Sounds great. Thank you very much. This is David Green for Brandon, the ghostly white tree surfing on the place. I knew you were going to do that. (laughs) Signing up. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online.